Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from Storyteller Academy. Learn the art of storytelling from published authors, illustrators, and editors at Storyteller Academy. From making picture book dummies, to character design, to their submission-ready workshop. If you are interested in writing or drawing stories for children, there is a workshop waiting for you. Sign up today at StorytellerAcademy.com. And so Instagram was like this great thing where I was taking pictures. I love that, you know, and most marshmallows, you know, it wouldn't exist if, I, if, if it weren't for Instagram. I mean, I really was taking goofy pictures of things. Um, but, you know, those things become like a black hole. And I, you know, I started realizing I was not really engaging with my daughter or my wife because I was composing pictures or... And then I really had to just go cold turkey. I mean, I just, you know, that to me is really... When I, my brain gets quiet again, I start drawing in my sketchbook, I'll read a book, I start noticing that there's sounds when I'm walking down the street, you know, I can hear my dog's collar jingling when we're walking, I mean, all those things that you just don't, which are all individually insignificant things, but collectively those are like the kinds of percolations that need to happen for your brain to have thoughts that are more complex than just how you're going to the thing that you're worried about in the moment that has to happen 30 seconds from now it's just there's like a weird like hamster wheel feeling that i get when i'm you, you know engaging with technology too much and looking at a screen this book is about marshmallows mostly this is the children's book podcast episode number 515 today i'm welcoming back rowboat watkins author illustrator of rude cakes big bunny and pete with no pants Today, Rowboat joins to talk about most marshmallows, a story about things that most marshmallows do, like celebrating birthdays and going to school, things that most marshmallows do not do, like dreaming, and the rarely discussed things that some few marshmallows secretly know. But you'll have to read the book to find that out. I love how Rowboat created the art for this story, and I cannot wait to try it with my students. But I also love how he makes room for his readers to dream of all the things they might accomplish, no matter who might tell them otherwise. Please welcome my guest, Rowboat Watkins, author, illustrator of Most Marshmallows. Uh, my name is Rowboat Watkins. Uh, I am a he, him, me, I. Uh... I live in Brooklyn, New York, with my 
family, and uh, I am lucky enough to get to make uh, picture books for uh, most of uh, my day job. <laughs> I was I was going to say for, for most of our readers, but that's not where you right. went. I like that. No, I I've been really grateful to to I guess sort of know you throughout throughout your publishing since Rude Cakes came out. Rude Cakes was your debut, yeah. um, and so it's been really fun to go through. What are we up to now? Four or five with most marshmallows. Number four. Most marshmallows is four, and I just turned in the fifth one, um, which will come out next year. That's wonderful. So, yeah, no, I'm very, I'm so very far? lucky. Say it again. I said, "How's it been so far?" Uh, how's it been? That's hard because, to say. I mean, well, I imagine it's good. I mean, good. you know, I feel I, I feel very lucky, but it's a lot of it's a lot of work, and it's very humbling a lot of the time because you know I feel like you know. I, I, for some reason, I expected it was just going to get easier, um, and then maybe I'm just a slow learner. I just feel like, every, honestly, like almost every day, I feel like I'm learning it all from scratch. Um, I just I forget what I learned the day before. You know, there are days where I'm not convinced that I'm, I have any idea what I'm doing. Sometimes it's a good feeling, it's kind of exciting. Sometimes it's just a little bit confusing and deflating but you know on the whole i just feel very you know i have a great editor i have a great designer at chronicle um that whole publishing house has just been very very good to me and i feel you know really fortunate to have landed with them in the first place so um i really in the, in the grand scheme have nothing to complain about you've also had this great thing though of at least from my vantage point often when i talk to individuals who are debuting with a book there is all this excitement and I, I can't wait to do all of these, you know, things that I've been sort of imagining that it would be like when I'm a published author. But at book four, I imagine now there are children all over the place that know you by name, that know your work, that um, have taken ownership with your books, that, you know, you're in bedtimes now, you're in school visits now. There's, there's sort of a different... Um, there's a, there's a, there's a, I'm reaching you at a different point, um, than I was those years ago when we talked and it's exciting to be there. I mean, uh, I, I don't, I, I, I can't disagree with you <laughs> because I mean, but I, I, but from where I sit, I mean, I'm like, I'm the same confused me sitting at my same desk <laughs> and I'm, I only go to the places that I go to. I'm not a super social person. I do. You know, like a handful of school visits. Um, I've done a couple um, workshops with, you know, grown-ups who are trying to get into publishing, and I do, you know, uh, bookstore visits. But I really don't, you know, I really don't know, and I don't feel any different in terms of where I am with my work than I did when I started with, you know, with Fruitcakes with Chronicle. I, re I mean, it's, I really... I genuinely feel like I'm in exactly the same headspace and that I'm confronting the same problems and excitements and mysteries that I was when I was trying to figure out that book. Yeah, um, that is an awful lot of the same scare and excitement and joy and, and not knowing and all of that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know that I would want it any different, you know, <laughs> but I, I see, you know, I mean, I, I think the main difference since the last time you and I spoke is that, you know, for many years I've been working at home next to the kitchen. Um, I did before I was doing picture books. Um, I continue to do it when I started doing picture books. Um, and last year, last um like July, I guess beginning of July, I had an opportunity to move into a shared studio space with a couple other picture book people. Um, and I was not going to do it because I didn't really want to incur the expense of paying for a space when I can still work at the table next to the kitchen. But I just thought maybe, because I really liked the people who were in the space, I thought that maybe I should give it a try um, and just see how it changed the way that I worked and how the how I thought about my self as a maker of books, um, whether I would take myself more seriously that I was not just sitting next to the kitchen. Um, and I don't know that I take myself more seriously, but it's definitely been different working in a space with other people who are doing the same thing, um, mostly in good ways, but it's also, I mean, they're in, at very different places in their picture book making careers. Um, so it, that's also kind of very humbling because, you know, I just, I'm at a whole different place with my work so both personally and just in professionally and in terms of recognition within the larger publishing community so well speaking of being in a whole different place with your work i think this is a great time to focus our attention on mars most marshmallows because this book has a different look and feel to to any of the books you've done so far yeah yeah so no why i mean you, that... why don't you share just a little bit about about the origin of this book, because I feel like I had, I've had the opportunity, or many of us maybe unknowingly, um, have, have sort of witnessed the genesis of this book. But I'd love to hear you share it in your own words. Um, well, so there were like a couple of seeds for this book. I mean, in terms of the idea of marshmallows, um, the marshmallow came from the same place that the idea for rude cakes, um, which was that they were both dreams that um, a poodle had in a different story that I was trying to write a a bunch of years ago. Um, The poodle was getting bullied at school and he was trying to make himself feel tough um, in his dreams so that he would feel tough in real life and then maybe he would stop being bullied. And some of the things he tried to dream about were rude cakes that kicked each other on purpose and never said sorry and burnt marshmallows and boxing gloves and piles of rocks and flowers with mustaches. And I could never figure out the story, um, but I liked the idea of the rude cakes, um, which over time I was drawing pictures of rude cakes in my sketchbook, and that led to writing the the manuscript for rude cakes. Um, and then in rude cakes, there's a bullied marshmallow, who's one of the characters, and I found myself drawing marshmallows in my sketchbook after root cakes. I was trying burn marshmallows. I was trying all kinds of marshmallows. Um, I just didn't have a story. Um, but I, I was thinking I was going to just do a, eventually I'd come up with something and, um, I'd been taking pictures on my phone of just random things that I was building around the house out of construction paper and cardboard and cake sprinkles and acorn tops and candy corns and whatever else was here. And I was posting them on Instagram or sending goofy pictures to friends. And uh, at some point I realized I was having more fun 
taking the pictures and making the little dioramas than I was working on the pictures that I was trying to turn into picture books. And I thought, well, if I'm having more fun making these constructions, maybe, maybe I need to find a way to inject some of that fun into the pictures I'm making for the books because they, they should feel fun. They shouldn't feel onerous. And, um, and that's when I realized maybe I should, that's, I should think about the marshmallow book in terms of building the pictures out of, you know, construction paper and real marshmallows. And I tried drawing on a real marshmallow and I realized that it's actually an incredibly satisfying surface to draw on. It's like a piece of paper. It's just perfectly white. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big marshmallow person. I don't like to eat them, but they're really alarmingly satisfying to draw on. So, um, what kind you know, of I, I, pen did you use to draw on them? Uh, I, I've experimented with all different kinds of oh, pens. Assumed, yeah. <laughs> right, right now, right now, I use a um, it's a Micron point oh one uh, dark brown ink pen. It's just something that they sell at the the art store, you know, nearest to my house. But I did a lot of experimenting with, you know, how do you how do you draw on the marshmallows in such a way so they don't get too smudgy when they're really fresh they're really kind of squishy and there's a powdery coating that clogs up the nib i started freezing them i was leaving them out on the shelf and letting them get stale um, <laughs> drawing them in, in the summer is really hard because when it's humid and hot no matter right what down. you do they just get sticky and <laughs> um so there's like a lot of trial and error um and a lot of different kinds of pens and um but the 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 you know, the one dark brown pen that I have right now is the one that I, I is kind of my go-to pen. But Rowboat, I love even just the, the glimpse into that research process that no matter what tool you're using, the pen you're using or, or painting or working with Adobe or whatever, you had to spend time to learn your subject. Um, it wasn't just like, Hey, wouldn't it be funny if we took photos of marshmallows in a book? That'd be great. Right. But instead, you not only found joy in playing around with it, but you really had to find the way, the means of of doing that to to make it viable for really to make it viable for for all of us to consume with our eyes. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was actually you know, uh, if I had known how much harder it was going to be to make the pictures this way. When I first pitched the idea, I don't know that I would have actually pitched the idea because I forgot that you also have to make lots of revisions to your pictures once you sign up with something and your editor is weighing in with feedback or the designer. Um, and I was, so I was, you know, everything was kind of just straight diorama where I would set up the whole thing. Everybody, everything would be in place. I was trying to figure out the lighting and the lighting was just really, really hard because I don't know anything about photography. I'm, I'm not a photographer. I don't have any real photography equipment. I just have desk lamps and the whole book was shot with my, with my phone. Um, but when I had to start making changes to some of the pictures, you know, that either meant kind of rebuilding everything from scratch or finding a way to photograph parts of the pictures and kind of splice them in in areas where things were not working. So there was like a lot more experimentation that started to happen once the book was kind of officially underway. Um, I think I had a much kind of I had a pretty naive idea about how how it would work to kind of 
cobble the pictures together when I first started working on it. Um, but you know, that was that was part of the exciting part of working on the book was like learning a whole different thing. Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from Bharat Babies. Bharat Babies produces children's books about India with a story for everyone. I've featured their books several times on the podcast, and now I've got a special offer for you, dear podcast listener. Visit bharatbabies.com and get $5 off any purchase of $19.95 or more when you use the offer code READINGISRAD. That's Bharat Babies, B-H-A-R-A-T-B-A-B-I-E-S dot com. Offer code reading is rad. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not a photographer, but I liked that. I like, I've always liked kids playing with dollhouses and toys and you know, I like the kind of performative aspect of working with kind of materials that were kind of recognizable as everyday materials. And, and you know, I want I wanted the book to look constructed. I didn't want it to look like, like that, that, like it was real in, the, in like an artificial way. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. I, I wanted you to know like, well, that really is a marshmallow. Or, hey, that really is like a piece of cardboard. Or, I was to say, their, their kitchen that, table really is cardboard. It, there's... There's texture to it that, that allows us to know that what well, sort of is deceiving because I found when I read the book, quite frankly, that that I really was brought into this world even though I was seeing objects that I know are part of mine. It was mm-hmm. a bit like I was reminded of <laughs> I play video games a lot, as does my son, and and there's this sort of trend in Nintendo games recently of making these textured worlds. They have a Yoshi game that's that's a woolly world, and the whole game looks like it's made out of yarn, textured, mm. things like that, and it's stitched, and there's buttons, and it interacts that way with those materials. And yet, while I'm playing this game, I know that, I know that I'm in the world of this character, but at the same time, I know that, like, oh, I, I could, like, almost make that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and playing with that, I've, I find, in an interesting way, makes a, a different sort of tension in your book. I wonder where your story, where the through line came from, because that to me is really what continued to draw me into caring about these marshmallows. Um, and I think that those words matching with the materials you used really, really m- reminded me that like, Oh, we're talking about me and not just mm-hmm. marshmallows. Mm-hmm. Um, so where when you were taking all these photos robot at what point at what point did you start to construct story around these photos that's a good question i mean i i think that i think initially what i started thinking about was what 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 seemed like it would be fun to build out of paper and cardboard that i could take a picture of and then as i started accumulating different ideas and kind of test photos for myself, I started, um, I started thinking about, I guess I was thinking about the poodle dreaming about the marshmallows in the original story idea. And then I thought, well, so what, what are marshmallows going to dream about? I think originally the book was going to be called marshmallow dreams. 
Um, uh, and then in the process of trying to kind of come up with that story, I, I realized that that I think that the kind of normal, understandable kind of human perception of a marshmallow is that it's just this kind of agentless kind of white squishy thing that's not really capable of being anything other than a kind of obedient confection that lives in a bag and waits to be consumed and that if you were if you were actually like a person who was raised that way and didn't have any higher expectations for yourself how kind of boring and uh, limited your life would feel you know I mean people are obviously full of much more agency than marshmallows but I think that you know there there are people there are kids there are grown-ups who I think grow up not having people in their lives who encourage them to 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 dream big to imagine possibilities for themselves beyond what seems to be feasible given the reality of the life that they live in so you know I think that's what I, it was, it was really for me. yeah yeah I mean so I you know I, I, I think I was just thinking about like how vulnerable and kind of uh, disposable marshmallows seem right I mean they're all kind of interchangeable but then you know as I was like opening up the bags and drawing on them I realized like they actually have like different shapes some of them are taller some of them are squatter some of them are kind of mushed in the front or have like pokier edges or a slanted top or a nubblier surface I mean there's all kinds of things that made them seem like they were distinct individuals um but you know, I'm I'm obviously also as guilty as anybody of thinking of marshmallows as kind of kind of just a uniform group of interchangeable white kind of nuggets, you know. Yeah. Um but I you know, I guess I was really trying to think about the the kid or the person grown up who would be reading the book, um, and looking at the pictures and maybe was not kind of tapped into what kinds of possibilities might lie outside of what they were currently imagining for themselves. I mean, um, it, it could be that you're like catching me at the end of the school year. And so my brain is just really wired on thinking about my children as they go into like summer break or go to middle school or go to a new school or just whatever happens after they, you know, are no longer under our care at the school mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not to, I, I, I'm, I'm truly not trying to over sentimentalize your book, but as I'm talking to you, I just can't stop, but think like how often do we treat them or think of them as sort of all being the same. And uh, the way we talk to them is sort of all the same. And the goals we have for these children, we're feeding them sort of all the same goals. Not that in any means, to say that teachers don't inspire children and believe that they can be great and do great things. But I think that there are times when maybe we as teachers might fall into a, a dangerous rhythm where we sort of maybe go on autopilot and just are trying to 
get through those math objectives or make sure mm-hmm. my kid can pass whatever reading level they're on now. And the, the, the part in your story that just makes me kind of want to cry. Um, if you don't mind, do you mind if I read to you, robot? Is that uh, robot? Sure, is that okay? that's so great. you, my friend write in one of my favorite spreads because of the symmetry of the two, um, illustrations robot. You have the, um, the dining room table that I talked about earlier. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, paired with um, the the children in bed. Um, and I love the symmetry of just the, the square shape, the way that people are placed, the books on both places. Anyway, I also just love that there's a family um, looking at plates of vegetables and forks sitting there. And it just is, <laughs> is absurd to me that there's like forks with characters that don't seemingly have any way to pick up the forks. I love it. But, well, the, the other thing you should know about that spread is that the, the vegetables that they're eating are actually cake sprinkles. The, the oh, marshmallows are so, so small that it's just green and, and orange cake sprinkles and some white and some yellow cake sprinkles that look like corn. Uh, and I, I like the fact that the plates and the and the and the utensils are just flat pieces of paper. I really was trying to again. I wanted it to kind of the constructedness of the scene to kind of be. Uh, palpable in some way even if it wasn't registering consciously that you know i wasn't trying to make three-dimensional forks i really wanted it to be you know these are just paper forks and they're just you know paper circles that have like a blue line on them that look like a plate um well but i digress here's here's the um here's the text before we jump back in it says most marshmallows eat dinner together and fall asleep most nights to dream about nothing. But some marshmallows somehow secretly know that all marshmallows can do anything or be anything. I'm going to stop there. Uh, having just read half of your book. <laughs> <laughs> but... um. There's, um, so the thing I experienced with this story, and I think it's not unlike what I experienced with Rude Cakes, is that the story is so big and so profound and so, so abstract and yet speaking directly to the readers, just saying, do you see yourself? Do you see me holding up a mirror to you? Mm-hmm. It just feels... But also, not to betray you, Roboat, it feels like you're holding a mirror up to yourself as well. Oh, I totally am. And... But I mean, I think that the thing that I tried to do with Rude Cakes and that I was trying to do, you know, I mean, nobody wants to be preached to. I certainly don't want to preach to myself. I don't like listening to myself when I get too pedantic. But, you know, how how do you how do you talk about something in a simple, direct way to somebody in such a way that um, it's disarming enough that they he- hear what you're trying to say? So that you know, like the cakes, root cakes is kind of a book about manners that makes fun of books about manners, right? But it's also, I mean, hopefully earnest in what it's trying to say to to 
the reader, I mean, or what I was trying to say to myself and to the characters in the book. Um, and you know, I think I was trying to do a similar thing with the marshmallows that they, you know, I, I don't think anybody wants to think of themselves as a marshmallow, but I certainly don't like to think of myself that way, but I, I recognize my squishy inner marshmallow who <laughs> is, you know, reluctant to kind of imagine possibilities beyond what I, you know, thought for myself that were realistic. And so I think even just the exercise of making the book in a different way was kind of a trying to make an, an effort at doing what I was trying to say in the book, just trying to do something different, um, challenging myself. Um, I have had many classes of children to whom I've read Rude Cakes, and we've made, I have, you've maybe even seen some pictures, we've made mm-hmm. um, cakes to wear as jaunty little hats, as the quote mm-hmm. goes. Um, recognizing that we are the Cyclops and these are our jaunty little hats. And what I found so powerful about that book and what I spoke to my students, the truth that we spoke is it's okay to be a little rude sometimes, but then you Mm -hmm. have to remember that you're wearing a hat that you can take off. Mm -hmm. That's something that you don't have to be that person. You can take that off. And what I recognized in most marshmallows is that you use the word most. You didn't use the word you. You marshmallows mm-hmm. do this. You marshmallows. It's not in that way uh, judging. Mm-hmm. It's it's rather observing and, and, and sort of, I think, affirming truth in the world that if we talk about marshmallows, look, most, most marshmallows have this routine that they go through their day and they go to bed and they dream of nothing. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's sort of what happens most of the time. Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's it's all or that it's exclusive. And so I think I think that just for me that simple fact that you chose the word most it does something. It communicates something. And that's that's where the space is. And I think to me that's where you're in that book the same way that my students are. That it's not. It's it's the word that you chose to make it. I'm not some adult saying, hey, you kids are mostly like this or your families are mostly like that. Or here's a thing I notice about all of you that are that are existing in the world. Um, that that judgment, but rather, again, that you're saying, you know, most do. And when you say most, that could be me, too. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Maybe that'll be for <laughs> you, the reader um, or you, the, the person being read to 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 sort of decide if you're in, in the most group or not. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not as though your book is like trying to shame anybody about anything, but just by using that word, you're, you're inviting uh, everyone. Yeah. I mean, I, the, I think that the, you know, the thing that I struggled with, with the book was that, you know, the transition from dreaming about nothing to the, the existence of this other group of marshmallows that has the capacity to imagine these other things is that I don't know what that secret is. I don't know the secret for, if I knew the secret, I would be applying it to myself. You know, it's a, it's a mystery that I'm struggling still to figure out, but you know, I, it's something about just having the kind of boldness to imagine something different. I mean, I think that if I'm really honest, the thing that I, 
I really like about the book, as sweet as the book is, um, and as much as I like the kind of, you know, affirmative message of dreaming big, is that there's really, at the end of the book, there's a kind of an active kind of, um, like, subversion or transgression, because at the end of the book, the last marshmallow is actually doing something that he or she was specifically told not to do earlier in the book. Earlier in the book, yes. Um, which is, and I know that there were there was a reviewer who reviewed the book who really didn't like the ending that she found it jarring um, and unsettling. And uh, you know, I think that for an adult reading the book, um, I can see where the idea of having a, a kind of a background message of questioning authority be a little bit threatening. But I really feel like that that's something that I'm not good at that myself. Um, my daughter is very good at that. Um, I find that exhausting as her father to be dealing with a young person who's constantly questioning authority. But <laughs> there's something really important about people who grow up in the world who know to do that because those are the people who then change the parameters of what's acceptable or doable or knowable. And, you know, it takes a kind of courage um, to, to do that. Right, to give yourself the authority to do the thing that you were told not to do. And I'm sure there are plenty of situations where that may not be advisable, but I still think on the whole that we need to have those kinds of people, those kinds of marshmallows who are daring to kind of dream the, the very thing that they were told that they're not allowed to dream. Um, and that was really kind of the, the thing that, was kind of driving the story. You know, what I think I told you that, you know, the original idea was there were burnt marshmallows in this poodle's dream. So the idea of burnt marshmallows kind of plays out in the kind of the instruction against what you're not supposed to do as a marshmallow and the kind of final act of kind of heroic transgression that's also kind of transformative. That I don't know. So I feel like that hopefully there's like a lot of things going on. And there's also the, the, the end of the book is really the only moment where there's a direct address to the reader that that the writing is pretty simple and it's kind of told just in a kind of um, kind of more narrative way. But, you know, but the, the last page is really kind of imploring the, the reader to recognize her or his own agency to make those kinds of choices for herself or himself. And also just just to literally dream about that. Allow yourself to dream against the things that other people are telling you, against, you know, the the, the box that other people are building for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Or they I, or that you're or that you're building for yourself. Building right? for yourself. Which then which huh? then becomes the yeah, that becomes the box you're building for yourself or the bag it. that you're putting yourself into. So I hear it. Yeah. I um I adore this book. Oh, thank um, you. And I really, I really robe out value hearing, hearing you in this conversation and where, knowing where, where the person that I'm talking to is laid down throughout the pages of this book. I, I think that, um, the, it's a really easy connection to make and I really value, um, how much of you and, um, your perception of the world, but also the way that the way that you care for the people that pick up your books, how much that that's apparent as well. So thank you for that. 
Well, thank you. That's really nice to hear. Um, I want to wrap up our conversation this time um, by bringing us back to those readers and give mm -hmm. you a chance to to share a thought with them. I'll see a library full of children tomorrow. Rowboat, is there a message that I can bring to them from you? Um, I mean, I, I guess I would say um, encourage them to dream big, but also to, you know, question. I don't know. I don't know how old the kids are, but, you know, question authority. I don't know how you say that in, in a way that isn't uh, intelligible to a, a kid, but I just feel like that, I don't know that you're ever too young to learn that there's like an importance to listening to your own voice and your own thoughts and to percolate with those. So question, question authority. I mean, is that, can I, is that a message that's okay to convey to a room full of kids? Yeah. I don't want to undermine your authority in the classroom, but, um, but I feel like it's, that's like, that's my hope for, for young people growing up is that they, they learn to, to dream for themselves and to question authority when circumstances seem to require it. Hi there, this is Haley Barrett, author of Baby Moon, What Miss Mitchell Saw, and Girl vs. Squirrel. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 400 episodes at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth or any other means helps reach more listeners which leads to more content and more amazing guests and that's a very good thing indeed before we leave i want to give a shout out to all of my patrons those folks who are supporting the podcast and keeping the lights on care of our patreon page thank you jenny sue amy sarah kate lisa darshna marianne jared anitra mike lynn link corina cynthia elaine Doug, Judy, Amanda, Ruth, Laura, Teresa, and others who are coming with me on this journey. You're welcome to come with us, too. Just visit patreon.com slash Matthew C. Winner and pick the support tier that's right for you. Teamwork makes the dream work, and each of you are helping to provide the tools necessary to make this podcast even greater. Thank you. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. 
The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.